Thanks be to God. Our message today is called Good News. In the first quarter of 2021, we're exploring some of what it means to have a UCC identity. Today's UCC identity point is that the denomination is broadly evangelical. But what does that really mean? When the Evangelical and Reformed Church and the Congregational Christian Churches merged in 1957, the UCC was born. As the new denomination sought to stake out its identity, it retained evangelical as one descriptor. This is important because evangelical means different things to different people. When we think of the word evangelical, we often think of people and churches who identify themselves as evangelical. Yet the UCC traditionally is much more closely allied, theologically and practically, to mainline Protestantism than evangelicalism. Evangelicalism has four major components, often referred to as Bebbington's quadrilateral. They are conversionism, biblicism, crucicentrism, and activism. That is, a conversion to the Christian faith, the Bible as central to our lives, the work of the cross as salvific in nature, and our laboring in the world as a result of our conversion to bring others to the faith. Are these the things we mean when we say the UCC is evangelical? Yes and no. Yes, we are broadly evangelical, but we typically mean it more like Martin Luther than Bebbington, which is to say the UCC is to be a church of the gospel, which is how Luther would put it. Today, we'll spend some time seeing what it might mean to be evangelical in Mark's text. So let's take a look. As soon as they left the synagogue, they entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever, and they told him about her at once. He came and took her by the hand and lifted her up. Then the fever left her, and she began to serve them. This text comes at the very beginning of Jesus' public ministry, just a normal day for him. It started earlier when Jesus and his friends were at the synagogue, and Jesus healed a sick man with an impure spirit. After the synagogue, they left and walked to Simon and Andrew's family home, where they found Simon's mother-in-law sick with a fever. Now, in the first century of the Common Era, a fever was attributed to a demonic force. That's why the text says the fever left her after Jesus touched her. So when Jesus's friends told him about the fever, he took her by the hand and helped her stand, and the fever went away from her. Immediately, she got up and tended to them. While we often assume she did so because she was a woman and that was her work, Mark Graves offers us another interpretation. He writes, After Simon's mother-in-law is restored to health, she serves. This is how Jesus himself will live and what all of his followers will be called to do. Ophelia Ortega elucidates, Simon's mother-in-law interprets the gift that she has received. Her service cannot be understood as a woman's menial work under the domination of lazy males, but as a true messianic ministry, creator of Jesus's new family. For that reason, this woman is Jesus's first servant and joins him in the radical announcement in action of the kingdom of God. Simon's mother-in-law is modeling for us discipleship. 
which is, of course, what we are called to. This is evangelism. The text goes on. That, that evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or possessed with demons, and the whole city was gathered around the door. And he cured many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. So the work continues by nightfall. Once the Sabbath's rest is over, the miraculous healings continue, all in a day's work for Jesus. Mark is showing us here that Jesus will not shy away from brokenness in mind or body. In Mark's classic hyperbolic sense, he writes that all who were sick or demon-possessed were brought to him, and the whole city gathered around the door of the house. So Jesus healed them. For Jesus, this is throwing the doors of the house of worship wide open. That is to say, the place of healing and service becomes the place of worship. This, too, is evangelism. The final section of this pericope begins, In the morning, while it was still very dark, he got up and went out to a deserted place, and there he prayed. And Simon and his companions hunted for him. When they found him, they said to him, Everyone is searching for you. He answered, Let us go on to the neighboring towns, so that I may proclaim the message there also, for this is what I came out to do. Very early in the morning, Jesus got up to pray in solitude. After he had offered God's healing to those who desperately needed it, he needed to find his center once more. And so I imagine he crept carefully over the bodies of the sick who still awaited his touch and stepped carefully toward a space that he could call his own for a bit. In the desert place, Jesus looks to hear from God and be restored. But not long after, his friends begin hunting for him. They knew the crowds were stirring and once again needed his immediate attention. So Simon and his friends go searching for Jesus as if he is lost. But Jesus knows exactly where he is and to what he is called. When they find him, he proclaims now that it's time to do today's work, not finish yesterday's healing, but that it's time to go into neighboring towns to proclaim the message. This, too, is evangelism. The word gospel comes from, from the Greek euangelion. In first century occupied Palestine, a gospel was a piece of good news issued forth from the Roman emperor. emperor. And the emperor cult, a religious system in which the emperor was venerated as a god and viewed as protector of the empire, the word gospel took on a religious meaning of its own. A gospel was an authoritative, weighty, royal proclamation with official news from the government proclaimed by a herald. In the first gospel, then, Mark proclaims a good news that comes not from the God of empire, but from the God of Israel, heralded by Jesus. And what does this Jesus proclaim? Well, we could argue that Jesus doesn't really do any proclaiming in this text. He doesn't give any instruction, doesn't elucidate the finer points of Torah. Rather, he sees what needs to be done, knows that it's within his power to make it happen, and simply does those things. In Mark, we see the teachings of Jesus more than we hear them. We see the gospel in action. We don't just receive information about what the kingdom or community of God will look like. We see it begin to become on earth as it is in heaven. 
we get not just information, but real transformation. When Jesus and his friends go to neighboring towns to proclaim the message, the gospel, they will see a teacher who teaches in word and deed. Or, perhaps more accurately, they will see the word through the deed. More than any other gospel writer, Mark emphasizes Jesus' power to heal. Again, Ophelia Ortega writes, His gospel is a healing word and action. This is what we mean when we speak of the kerygma, of preaching the gospel. Jesus will preach by his actions, whether it is in a religious space such as the synagogue or the house of a friend or the neighboring towns to which they will next travel. For Mark, there is no dualistic separation of the sacred and the profane, the public and the private. Jesus simply enters into the spaces where he is needed and brings the power of the God of Israel with him. And friends, I think this is the best example of the gospel for us, for what it means to be evangelical. For Jesus, teaching and healing are the same ministry. As followers of Jesus, it is our call to proclaim in public and in private the work of God in the world. And where may we bring healing and wholeness? Where may we offer our gifts? Frederick Buechner famously wrote, the place God calls you to is the place where your deep gladness and the world's deep hunger meet. I don't know precisely what your proclamation of the gospel will look like. I don't know how your deep gladness will impact the world's deep hunger. But it is my hope that as a congregation, we will take seriously the command to spread the gospel to be broadly evangelical in the way that we see Jesus doing in today's text. May we imagine a world where our service looks like bringing healing and wholeness to bear in broken places. May we be humble enough to learn from the master and from Simon's mother-in-law what it means to serve where our gifts are needed. And may we be brave enough to offer those gifts to God's beloved in need wherever we find ourselves. Amen. Our preparation for communion today is, O love that will not let me go.